Hebrews chapter 10. We're continuing our In His Image series. We have this week and next week. That series will wrap up. We'll move into a series on 2 Peter. You can even now start reading through that letter. Get ready. But for now, I want us to focus on Hebrews chapter 10. In a moment, I'll read verses 19 to 25. The, the theme today, the topic is body image. Now, I'm not going to give an inspirational talk on how you should view your own personal body. We're talking about the image of God. And as Pastor Sam has been preaching, we have, each of us individually, a role to cooperate with God as he conforms us into the image of Christ and to devote ourselves to that process, to him. But we also have a responsibility to carry out conformity and work with God that can only be done all together. And if we don't work together, we will not become like Christ wants us to be. Worship is to God alone, but it's in the company of all these people. And here in this room today, as we gather to worship, God, I believe, at the testimony of this word, has called you here. And his call gives you purpose that leads into things that you can do. But we need to find out what this message is and how we as a body can pursue the image of Christ together. Look down at the text with me, Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this text of scripture. Thank you for the continued worship that we are engaged in now. As you speak to us through the word, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, hearts that are sincere, not mindful of other things now, but genuinely devoted that we are yours. And as we sung, all I have is yours. Help us, Lord, we're so prone not to really believe that or to act in such a way that that is true, but we desire to give everything we have to you. So speak to us, minister to us through your word. Help me as the mediator just speaking this word this morning the messenger to speak your words and to glorify Christ. It's in his name I pray, amen. <clears throat> Hebrews is such a rich book and I do you an injustice by plopping down towards the end of it. Sometime you should read the first chapters and I would even encourage you, if it piques your interest, read the whole book. Go through it. it it's a hard book to digest but it really only has one main message Jesus is superior to everything that the old covenant could offer. Jesus is better. Not only better, but he blows away any other 
any other system to approach God. He is the only right way, the only sufficient way to approach God. And so the writer to the Hebrews then, whoever he was, we don't know the identity of this person. He turns based on that message to then in these later chapters, even in chapter 10 and verse 19 where I'm starting, he shifts from his teaching into his application. And that's why you even see the word therefore as it starts out. You know, you know when you see therefore in the Bible or in any literature, a point is being made based on something that's already been said. And you find a therefore, you have to look what is it there for. Good, thank you, my fellow grammar teachers. As the writer picks up here in verse 19, he has made a point which he is going to reiterate. Thankfully, we don't have to look back before the therefore to see what happens because he repeats what he has just said his main points have been. And then he gives some application. So as we focus on our church body today and how we can pursue the image of Christ together, we're gonna see in the text, first of all, the one defining characteristic that should drive us towards pursuit of the image of Christ together. And then based on that one defining trait, we're going to see three points of action that the author encourages us to pursue. I don't have any points that will appear up here, but that's the main flow this morning. And if it gets confusing, just find Christ in the text, okay? All right, so verse 19, if you look there with me, we'll see the beginning of this first point. The church is marked by unshakable confidence. Confidence, the church is marked by unshakable confidence. Here's how he begins. Therefore, brothers, and ladies, please understand, this is that rich Greek word, brethren, that includes men and women, and it's talking to all believers at this point. He says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us respond. So that first part he is asserting that based on what he has said previously, which he reviews here, the church is a body that is marked by unshakable confidence. How can we, as a church, be confident? Not doubtful, not haltering in our attempts to follow after God and to understand his mission. God says his people that he calls to himself to gather, even in days like today, in events like this, in the public worship, are to be confident. How can they be confident? There are two things that mark our confidence. Number one, Jesus has opened the way to God. And Jesus, second of all, remains our priest before God. Now, why do these things matter? Well, look at what Christ has done. First of all, Jesus has given us confidence because he's opened the way to God. Do you see how he has done this? The writer says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, okay, how, how can we enter the holy places? We haven't even defined what those are yet, but there's temple allusions here. And the writer is pointing out that even in this time, the temple, which was still standing, contained a room 
that was the most holy room in the temple construct. That was the place where God was, had commanded his people to put the Ark of the Covenant and to have there the place where he would sit in judgment as the rightful king among his people. In ancient times, he appeared at the temp- temple and before that at the tabernacle in a pillar of fire. And his glory was there. Even though they could not see God, they knew that he was there. One person could see God, in effect, once a year. And that was the high priest who would go in through the curtain to get there. But I'm ahead of myself. Right now, we need to know that the holy places that Christ has opened up to us is direct access to God. How has he done this? Well, he has done this by his blood. The Bible calls that the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain. And when we get to this word curtain, I need to pause for just a moment and explain a bit of the biblical history that leads up to this point. Hebrews is such a rich book because it's addressing Jewish understanding of the law and the dependence of the Jewish people on observing even the sacrificial portions of that law in order to be right with God and to fulfill and obey his commands. When Jesus came, the work that he accomplished did away with the need for those laws. And what the Bible is addressing now is a new dynamic in which people who formerly could not approach God now have complete access to him. This was so new. For thousands of years, their experience had been God was off limits. This began back in the garden when God created Adam and Eve and they sinned. He kicked them out of the garden. And you might recall that in the story he placed at the gate of the garden so they would not go back in two cherubim, angels with swords of flame. And if you passed through those angels, you would die. And the warning was there. You can never come back in lest you die. And their only hope was that God would provide some means that they could continue to approach him by, but they had ruined the opportunity to know God and to have fellowship with him. As the years passed, God raised up one man, Abraham, and called him into a relationship with himself and promised him, I will make a nation out of your offspring. And 400 years later, all those descendants of Abraham were in the nation of Egypt and had gone there in a time of famine in order to get some help, but remained there thanks to their connection by one man, Joseph. But as time passed and hundreds of years went by, the king of that country no longer regarded Israel or its God and had them trapped in subjectivity. God raised up another man, Moses, whom we read about this morning. And Moses was the man that God called to go into Egypt and to challenge the king of Egypt to let God's people go. And the challenge was one of God's, the real God versus the gods of Egypt. And through many plagues, God delivered his people and called them out to Mount Sinai where the law was given to them. And in that law, God stipulated that they were to build a temple ultimately, but a tabernacle at that time for their portable journey And in that tabernacle, they were to place a most holy place where God commanded them to build a seat for him, a throne on which he could sit. 
And he promised that he would journey with them and be with them, but no one could come into him. Only a mediator, only someone who had prepared himself to go into the presence of God. And ultimately when the temple was built and Israel was established in the land as a nation, that temple also contained a holy place. And in that tabernacle as well as the temple, a curtain was put to divide the people, even the priests, whose job it was to go into that temple from the presence of God. And on that temple curtain, which was 60 feet high, 30 feet long, and four feet thick, were images of cherubim. And what was that a reminder of? The way back to the garden was cut off. Access to God, forbidden. Only by the sacrifice of blood can you come in. And only one man, one time of year. And if he does not purify himself on the outside and bring with him the sacrificial blood to sprinkle on the altar, not even that man will survive. He will die. God had spoken. When Jesus came, there was another temple. Herod had reconstructed it after the other one was torn down and destroyed. The spirit of God and the glory did not hover over that one like it did in the previous generations, but there still was a holy place reconstructed and a curtain that divided even the priests from access to God. Now, when Christ Jesus died on the cross, Mark chapter 16, 15 tells us that that temple curtain was ripped. That 60 foot high, 30 foot wide, four feet thick curtain was ripped from the top to the bottom. A miracle that could only have taken place if a divine entity had done it. It was God. When his son breathed out his last breath and said it is finished, all of the work that was required for man to have access to God was done. Jesus had done it. And how had he done it? It was by his blood that he shed Hebrews tells us all his temples and tabernacles were prescribed by God because in heaven, the real thing was there. These earthly things were a copy. God reigns on a throne and access to him is impossible without the sacrifice that can please him. The only sacrifice that pleased God the Father was the bloody sacrifice of his own son. And the curtain that we pass through, friends, is the curtain of his own flesh, The flesh of our savior was ripped from his back. He was battered and bruised. And as it were, he hangs. And the only way into God is to walk through the bloody path that he shed and the ripped curtain of his flesh that he ripped for us. But friends, this is the confidence that we have. This is confidence And the writer of this letter is trying to encourage these people who have not yet believed to press in and to reject anything that did not bring them to Christ and to pursue Christ with all their hearts, with the true heart of devotion and faith because there was no one greater, no one who could get them to God. But the confidence for God's people is even greater. As a church body, our confidence even now is not just that the way is open, And we can get in, but our confidence is in the fact that our Jesus still reigns alive today as our priest. Why is that important? 
It's vital. He does not stand aloof in heaven and say, I hope you can make it up here or I hope you figure out the path along the way. I'm glad you're in, but try to figure this out on your own. Now, Jesus, our high priest, it's another point that the writer to the Hebrews developed through the first 10 chapters. He spends about five or six chapters just talking about the superiority of Jesus in his office as our priest. And Hebrews 7.25 says this, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. For he always lives to make intercession for them. All of the, the points in Hebrews leading up to this section of scripture says that Jesus is so fully acquainted with every one of our weaknesses. He experienced temptation just like you and me. And the fact that he never sinned does not make him an unsympathetic savior. It makes him the only savior. Had he sinned, he would be just like us. Since he did not sin, he is both able to understand with mercy our plight, even now when we still struggle with sin. And it makes him a sympathetic priest on our behalf so that we can have confidence, I still have access to God. When you have those days when you say to yourself, I blew it again, and by that you mean you sinned. And furthermore, I know God's probably not gonna accept me because this is yet another time when I have failed him. I just need to work up a bit of religious fervor again to approach him. That is heresy. And that is not the gospel. That's not the good news. Jesus as our priest exists to say forever to you, my friends, who have come to him and drawn near to God through him. There is nothing that you can do even now to keep yourself in the grace of God. I have done it all and I continue to minister to you. Friends, does that not give you confidence that you belong to God? If you have come to God through Jesus, you belong to God and he has sought you out. And furthermore, he will never abandon you. He is able to save you to the uttermost. That's time beyond reckoning that you and I can't even conceive of. It's time that ends and continues and we don't even know how it does. Jesus can save you beyond that. And he purposes to do so. This is the confidence that we have. And so he, he builds this up and says, I've just told you all that. And if you want more encouragement, go back and read chapters one through 10. Now he says, because this is true and because this is our confidence, here's what we do. Now look at verse 22, you can see there the first of the phrases, let us. Verse 23, again, let us. And verse 24, let us. If you get lost, these are the three responses. And notice the language. The language is not you, singular, but it's let us. To some degree, we have a role to play together. Now, I have to confess, I thought I had it all figured out what this was going to look like because I thought, sure, he's getting into a plural command for all of us to pursue something together. It's gonna be some action points that talk about what we can do. But in actuality, when I was considering that the writer would say, okay, now that you know this, just gather together, encourage each other, and just keep going. Like 
somehow community is just gonna automatically happen and community is just gonna solve all of our problems. What happens when we get together in community is that we bump up against each other and as we try to encourage each other in the mission, we often find out that, hey, I'm still a sinner and you're still a sinner and as we bump up against each other, there's friction. Some people leave church based on relationships that just don't work. Others leave because of music and others leave because the preaching wasn't what they liked, but I'm thinking that a lot of people may have those reasons, but in the other sense, they were put off because in a real sense, they looked for real relationships. For some reason or another, it just didn't work out for them. Now, into our human plight, the first two let us commands are focused exclusively on Jesus Christ again. And here's the deal. If we want community that helps each other, we need Christ. And I don't know how to make that more plain. (laughs) Where I'm looking for community, the biblical writers say, take Christ and know that Christ is with you. Focus on what he has done together. Talk about it together. Rehearse his majesty. Talk about what he has done. And so therefore the first Let us, application is this, let us draw near to God in faith. Let us draw near in faith with a true heart full of devotion to God. So what does this mean and how does this relate back to Christ? Well, first of all, when it comes to us gathering together, we need to ask the question, why are we here? Why are we here? On this day of our change, I I didn't know quite how many people would come. We've got spring break starting today. Uh, We also had the threat of snow. So earlier in the week, it was a toss-up. Would we even be here today? And if we were here today, despite all those odds, who would be here and why would they come? Why do you come? Seems like some options for coming to a church gathering like this might be because you feel like it will fulfill you and give you something to help you keep going in your personal life. Maybe you came here because you want some inspiration. Maybe others of you, and I'm not saying these are necessarily bad, but I don't know that they fulfill everything. Uh, The second one might be you like the people who are here. And so you came thinking, I like the people there. I like hanging out with them. Church to me is a fulfillment of my community need. Well, each of those is lacking. And what God desires when you come here is that you come with a heart that is true. True means genuine. True means that there is nothing hidden within you, but you are open and you have come not for your purposes, but you have come because you understood God has called you. And God has positioned you here and that God has a purpose for you here in this local gathering, which is a mirror and an expectation of the heavenly gathering that does take place all the time. God has called you out of the world. So if you come here thinking that coming here in some sense gets you right with God, you're off base. That's not correct. If the Old Testament sacrificial system instituted by God could not ultimately make the worshipers of God right with him, how can anything that we put together here at West Park Baptist Church make you right with God? 
None of it can. As appealing as it is, as delightful as it may be, the only way for you to draw near to God is to do so through Christ, with faith in him. And talking about that with each other. The text also tells us that we have to come, let us come, it says, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. What does that mean? But that we are to come not in any way trying to make ourselves presentable to God, but having an inner cleansing that has already taken place by the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood can sanctify and cleanse our very consciences, which either excuse us or accuse us all the time. The only way for our consciences to be clear before God and within our own psychological sense as we look in is if they can be cleansed in real time, genuinely and permanently by the blood of Jesus Christ. Is your faith in that? Is your faith that he has done that? And even as our bodies are cleansed with water, this is similar to Ephesians 5 where it commands husbands, wash your wife with the water of the word. Love her well by giving her what she needs and helping her understand the things of God, focusing intently on her. In a similar way, we are coming, drawing near to be washed again, to be cleansed. We are drawing near together. And as we come, are you coming with the expectation that God will speak? And will you take his word and go back out of here and speak it to one another? It's really awkward at times. I mean, there's a question on the handout that we give, the, bib, the, the bulletin insert. It always starts, what truth stood out from you from the sermon this week? All right, what, what stood out to you from the sermon this week? Sometimes that's a really awkward question to ask. And you don't have to ask it. You know, you're standing around at the coffee out there. Hey, what did you get from the sermon this week? Uh, sometimes that puts me on the spot. I'm like, uh, I was a little sleepy. I'm not really sure I got all the points. Instead, do the work of drawing near with faith, expecting that God will minister to you through speaking his word. Write something down that stands out to you. You, you might today say, hey, you know, that guy I was talking about the curtain in the temple, that, I've never really heard that before. What do you make of that? You could always get opinions. But the point is, start talking and get your conversations aligned around what God has said and done for you and for the people around you. They need it, and you need it. The second let us is this. Let us hold fast to our hope. Let us hold fast to our hope. Verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised faithful. Also in the book of Hebrews up to this point, there has been a thread of hope that has united these texts and the argument about Jesus together. Jesus is superior in every way. He is the sacrifice for our sins. He is the living priest now who ministers to us and for us in the presence of God. When the Bible speaks of hope, back in Hebrews chapter six, it talks about it like it's an anchor. I'll read that verse and then I wanna talk about an anchor for just a minute. Hebrews chapter six And if you will listen, I'll read verses 19 and 20. We have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, 
a hope that enters into the inner place, again, that holy place of God, behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Some things there that are, are necessary to explain, I won't explain all of those right now, but to say this, when the New Testament speaks of hope, it speaks of it as a certain thing. So often we speak of hope as this uncertain future that we're kind of thinking might come to pass. And as mundane, as inconsequential as our lives seem right now, we're just looking for that next big break, that next big opportunity. And we hope, if this year's been tough, that next year is gonna be a little better. We hope that if we've had struggles this year, the next year's gonna be a little less struggling. And we hope that if somebody's bothering me this year, then maybe next year they die. <laughs> now, that, that was actually, that was a study that was done several years ago in New York as a professor of New York University, went out on the streets and pulled 3,000 people. Those are the answers that they gave. That's not much to live for. (laughs) What do Christians live for? We live for the reality, number one, of what's already done. Jesus, as our forerunner, has gone into the holy place of God, in God's kingdom where God reigns, and he's there now. But he is holding on to us. The anchor in a ship, both in ancient times and in modern times, is the one tool on the ship that is indispensable. The rudder might break, the engine might fail, the mast might break, the captain might be drunk and crazy, and the sailors might fall overboard. But the one thing that will keep the ship where it's supposed to be is the anchor. And we have an anchor that solidifies us in our confidence, and the anchor himself is Christ. The hope is Christ. Our future is Christ. And since that is so, our application point in holding fast to that confidence is to encourage one another all the time that we, as God's people, are being held. There's a song that I first learned a year ago, and I was at a a conference where there were about 5,000 pastors And I had never heard that song before. And so when they were all singing it, I just for a moment stood there overwhelmed with what I was hearing. The song is called, He Will Hold Me Fast. And you see in our text here, we are commanded, hold fast our confession of of hope. But that song, He Will Hold Me Fast, starts this way. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And the chorus is this. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Look up that song. Listen to it this week. And I would encourage you to make it a part of your life because as I have done so since and listened to it hundreds of times, it's been in times when I fear that my hope is no better than those people in the state of New York and no better than we tend to live most of the time. My hope is Christ who holds me fast. By this point, friends, 
If this does not resonate with you, then the next point I'm gonna share probably isn't where to start, but I want you, if, if this does not resonate with you, to go to Christ and ask him to awaken your heart. If you do not love Christ, the next step isn't gonna make much sense to you. If you do not pursue him now and your heart has been awakened to him because you know he loves you, then I, I venture to say that most of what I've said so far this morning sounds like a foreign sound to you. But there is hope for you. If you are here today and you do not have this love for him, know that he is extending this love to you. The love of his bloody sacrifice for you. Which means that you've sinned and you need this forgiveness that he extends to you. And you need to bow to him and say, I believe in what you've accomplished for me and I need it because I am a sinner. Thank you for accomplishing this work that I never could. Forgive me and thank you for what you've done. That is the beginning of a relationship based on fact and truth of what he is, who he is and what he has done. Now, the last application is this. And if you look down at the text again in Hebrews 10, it says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Back when I was in college, I was in Christian college. I was studying to be a pastor. I was an older I think I was a sophomore. I had a freshman roommate who was a, this tall guy, blonde, Scandinavian-looking, an artist. And it was one of our requirements at that time that we had to go to Sunday night church. And you know what? That's all I looked at it as. And I was, in some sense, a spiritual authority in his life. He didn't go to Sunday night church, and I was trying to get him to go. But why? I don't even know how my relationship was with Christ at that time. So much of it was about duty, so much of it was about what I had to do, not about the delight of being called together with God's people. And so I was trying to push him and say, you know what? The Bible says, let's not neglect meeting together. So you gotta meet together. You see, that didn't pierce his heart. If you're here today, I'm preaching to the choir, okay? But it seems like the attendance records, even among a faithful gospel preaching church like this, most people are here around 60% of the time. And we can have stuff come up in our lives that pushes out the need to meet together as God's people. And they can feel legitimate a lot of times. You can have some weeks where you had a sports activity for your team. You can have others where you were visiting some relative in another city and you couldn't be here. Another time when you're sick. What we gotta be careful of is that we can fall into a pattern of being away so much that we lose sight of the glory of why we're even together at all. Part of this is a reminder and a worship of our God who loved us and called us together. But we can't use this text of scripture to beat each other over the head and to say, well, because the Bible says this, you better just be here. Well, why does it say this? It's because of who God is and what he's done for us. And the amazing reality that's taken place in our consciences and in our hearts to redeem them and bring us together as a people who are redeemed so that we can together look for ways to encourage one another. And the text says this. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That word stir up 
is a Greek word where we get an English word, paroxysm. And it, and it means a violent fit, an eruption of shaking. Now, why would they use that word? It's almost like he's saying, if they had these things in that time, take a taser to your brother or sister in the church and wallop them a good one. <laughs> if we didn't have the word consider before it, you would get the image that we're just to make other people do things. But the image is, you are to take great thought as to how you can be a sudden eruption of love and good works. You're to think ahead of time of how you can do this in a way that will help the others around you. Love and good works. By this point, we've seen in our text of scripture several things. We've seen faith, okay, anchor it in Christ. Hope, he is the anchor that anchors you to God. And now love. These should be the things that permeate our image, permeate our body. One time, not long ago, when I heard that Pastor Al Cage, who wasn't a pastor at that time, was coming to be on staff, I was both excited and I also thought, oh, great. Why did I do that? Because that guy is a paroxysm. <laughs> that guy, well, what do I mean by that? He erupts with love and good works for other people. And he's the kind of guy to have him around, it hits me right here. And you know, the more I've tested him, the more I've seen him in action, the more legit the guy is. I've got to tell you, he is a considerate paroxysm of love and good works. And I'm thankful for him. But what he's here for, and what many others in our body are here for, really what you all are here for, is to be such agents of love and good works. I'm so thankful for many others in this body that I can walk up to and their concern is for me and my walk with the Lord Jesus. One of our ABF leaders, a team of, um, of men that work together, went out to lunch with me one time and one of the guys asked me, and I can always count on him to do this kind of thing. He asked me, how are you doing? And he looked at me like this and nodding his head, just waiting for me to answer my typical answer about, you know, oh, I was sick, I'm better now. And I've been busy. And then he said, how are you with Jesus? That can be an awkward and sometimes cheesy question if we're not careful. But if you got a life that backs it up, I understood that he meant it. And I answered him. I was able to share with him where I was at in my walk with Christ at that point. And it wasn't a shining example for everyone to see, but I'm being sanctified and being worked on and the Lord is gracious to me. And I was able to work that out with him and to ask him in a similar way, tell me how you are really doing and how is your walk with the Lord? Let me give you an easy way to, to ease into it, okay? You might have some people that are currently in a group with you or you're sitting around them each Sunday. I mean, you, you, you see the same people in here at 11 o'clock every week and they're always around you. Sometimes you have some guests that might come in Right, whoever God is placing around, you get to know them and say, hey, you know, I know your name is Bill. Sorry if there's any Bills here, you're just an example. I know your name is Bill. Um, can you tell me how you came to know Christ? That's gonna be an interesting conversation starter. You know, they might say, mm, what do you mean by that? Well, how would you answer that question? Are you ready as a people to hold on to your faith? And are you ready to promote your hope 
because you have confidence that have been won for you by God, not by what you work up. Can you continue that conversation? Like I said, you know, this insert may be helpful, may not. What I've done this week, I've given some application points that can continue beyond what I can share right now. One thing that I would like to say has revolutionized the way that I approach this idea of church here on Sunday morning. It's this, before I ever get here, I am learning, and I, and I, don't, do, I don't do this perfectly. You know, my wife and I have three young kids and our rides to church can be very interesting sometime. <laughs> Typically on Saturday night, I have to purposefully consider how I'm gonna stir up love and good works. And I pray to God, and I did this last night, God, please help me find people around me as I get there to worship who I can intentionally love and show goodness to because you've called me there for that purpose. Today is another day that you have prepared for me to walk in the good works that you have prepared beforehand for me to do. And help those other people, help somebody out there to be praying this for me <laughs> because I really need it today. If we are a church that is so gripped by what Jesus has done for us and we worship him and we're gripped by his love that abides for us and holds fast to us, we ought to be a people who respond in taking that encouragement to one another. And whether it's this insert, if this does not help you, don't use it, but you definitely need the word of God. Be in the word and ask God to be teaching you so that when you come here, you have something to share with those in need. You could have a song you've listened to, like I shared with you. You can have a verse that has resonated with you. You could have a testimony of how God has worked in your life that week and confirmed it by his word. And you now are taking steps of faith to share that with somebody else. This is how your life ought to be in rhythm in the steps of the confidence of what Jesus has accomplished for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Thank you for how you are working out these very things here. Our assembly here is a gathering that exists because you have called your people to be here. For those who are guests and are considering these claims of what Christ has done and how this confidence can be theirs, please work in their hearts so that they would make today the day of salvation. I pray that you would help us as a church to walk in the accomplishments of Christ with faith and hope and love. And may you be pleased in all these things to continue to sustain us and to hold us fast even as we pray and sing to you now. In Jesus' name.